What a great song that is. Uh, I think it's the greatest uh, version of Psalm 42 that has ever been put to music. It powerfully expresses our need for the Lord and our trust in Him all at the same time. Every time we sing it is still fresh uh, to me. We are so grateful for the music ministry here at Twin City, a ministry of excellence. Uh, Kyle and his wife Emily are on vacation this week, will be back with us next Sunday, but last Sunday was their fourth uh, anniversary with us, so we are thankful to them, and we're thankful for the others that carry on that music ministry when Kyle is not here. Uh, What a blessing it is to have Kevin and to have Pam on piano and the others who minister so ably to us to ensure that we enjoy that excellent music ministry uh, week after week after week. We're going to be talking about prayer this morning. Uh, Prayer is certainly something that is an important element in any maturing Christian's life. A reliance on prayer, or we could even say a lack of reliance on prayer, tells us much about a person's relationship with God. This is especially true for those who are engaged in ministry, pastors, elders, and so forth, ministers who seldom pray for their congregations, and the ministry that God's given to them reveal something wrong. It reveals either a very uh, callous indifference to the people, to the sheep, to the souls that God has put under their care, or it conveys this very uh, foolish uh, reliance on self and on human strength. Of course, we don't have to just think of those in the ministry when we say things like that. We could also say this about other contexts. One example would be the family. We could say it about parents who seldom pray uh, for their children. They are conveying a a, uh, reliance upon self or really a lack of care and love for those that God has given to them. Regardless of the context that we might apply this to, the bottom line is all Christians should be known as consistent prayers. I don't think that actually is a word, but uh, consistently known as those who pray. And like any other discipline in the Christian life, praying is something that we can learn to do better. Now, one way we can grow in our ability to pray is to study the prayers that are in the Bible. Some of you may remember that I recently mentioned that same thing to you on Wednesday evening in our study of Psalm 119. We are going through that wonderful psalm on Wednesday evenings. What a great study that is. And that particular night, it was my turn to teach, and so I commented on how we can learn uh, to pray by modeling our prayers on the prayers that are found in Scripture, such as that one we were studying that evening in Psalm 119. But there are, of course, many other prayers in Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Most of the prayers recorded in the New Testament are the Apostle Paul's prayers as they are found in his 13 epistles. This means and confirms that Paul was a man of prayer. He had an intense commitment to prayer. And since he was a man of prayer, uh, it was not uncommon for him at all to suddenly break into prayer at a juncture uh, in one of his letters. That was typical of him. And our passage today is an example of that very thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we are looking at the last three verses. 
11, 12, and 13. It is a prayer. So prayer is obviously important in a believer's life. Our spiritual growth depends on it. You can even go one step further and say that the content of a person's prayers tells us much about the person. So what do you find when you evaluate Paul's prayers? Well, you find how much he prayed for others, and you find uh, how much he prayed concerning spiritual priorities. I like the comment that Dr. Richard Mayhew makes in his commentary. Dr. Mayhew was the dean of the seminary, the master seminary in the years I was there, and a good friend. He summarizes Paul's prayers this way, they are directed to God, focused on others, spiritual in content, and acknowledging his utter dependence on God. Well, we will find all that to be true in this prayer that we are looking at today in verses 11 through 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now, this prayer, you'll remember, comprises the third of three sections that outline the entire chapter. We've already studied the first two sections. They were, number one, the strategic mission, that was verses 1 to 5. Then we looked at, number two, the encouraging report in verses 6 to 10. So today we look at section three, number three, the intercessory prayer. Now we will dissect this prayer as it is our habit to do here when we study God's Word together. And when we do that, we will find that it has some distinctive characteristics. In fact, there are three of those. So here's the first distinctive characteristics. Number one, the distinctive address, the distinctive address. We see very clearly here in this prayer that Paul believed and prayed to a single God, but he also believed that that one single God exists in more than one person, which means the apostle acknowledged what we call the Trinity, or better even, the Godhead. Look at verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord, stop there, we do note that two of the persons of the Godhead are mentioned, but what's even more important is that two very important affirmations about God are made here in this address. Here's the first affirmation. We find here an affirmation of God's unity, God's unity. That expression of unity is accomplished in a couple of ways. First of all is that long phrase, our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord. Now, from a grammatical standpoint, that is the subject, that long statement. So in grammar, when it's that long, we call it a compound subject. What's important to know, though, is that that compound subject is a subject of a singular verb that's coming up in a moment, the verb direct. He says, may this God direct our way to you. That verb direct or clear our way to you is singular. And so you've got a compound subject, but yet connected to a singular verb. That is what you do if you are expressing the unity of the subject, the equality of the subject, in this case, the unity of the Father and the Son. There is a significant addition to that picture of unity, though, here, the pronoun himself. 
in the Greek, that's actually how Paul opens the prayer. So I want you to listen to how it is literally worded. More literally, literally it reads, May himself, God our Father and the Lord Jesus, that himself is referring to both the Father and the Son. The one personal pronoun, himself, is the Father and the Son. And that implies, once again, the one essence of these two persons. And so that, plus the compound subject governing a single verb, points to the unity in the Godhead. And, of course, this wonderful doctrine of God's unity is related, actually, to another doctrine that's found here, and that's the deity of Jesus. This address presents Jesus as equal to the Father. That's the way it's worded. Equal in dignity, equal in essence, equal in power as God. And He is that because Jesus is essentially one in essence, one in nature with the Father. The linking of the Father and the Son like that is frequently found in the epistles. In fact, we don't have time to look at them, but there are at least 19 occurrences where they're linked together. But what's important in our verse, this occurrence of it, is the fact that 1 Thessalonians is dated early. It was written somewhere around, give or take, A.D. 50. So the fact that Jesus is presented at such an early stage in an early writing as being one with God the Father and therefore divine confirms that the early church looked upon Jesus as being God. This is not something that people made up centuries later. And of course, the early confession of Peter fits with this. That famous statement back in Matthew 16, verse 16, where Jesus is discussing how he is viewed by people. Simon Peter answered this, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was a powerful statement from a Jew's standpoint. He's the Christ, the anointed one, the promised Messiah, the divine one who is literally the Son of the living God, which is a way of expressing equality with God. So from a very early time, Christians affirm the deity of Christ. So back to the address in verse 11. Paul's petition utilizes all of that grammar, but also a particular mood here that, and there's more moods in the Greek language than what we say are in English, but it's captured in the English term may. May God do this. That's the way to express a sincere heart wish. So Paul uses it here to express how sincere his heart desires were concerning the Thessalonians, and he directs that sincere wish to both the Father and the Son. Something else grammatical is that little possessive pronoun, pronoun, our. That goes with God the Father and with the Lord Jesus. He's our God and Father and our Lord. By doing that, Paul is confirming that both are divine rulers and that we have an intimate relationship with both. It is not true that somehow the the Father or what some call the God of the Old Testament was the stern God, the distant God, the transcendent God, but Jesus of the New Testament is the one that we can relate to and have a relationship with. No, Jesus of the New Testament is the one who rules and reigns. The Father of the Old Testament is the one that is intimate with His people. So it's true of both. 
Well, the unity of the Godhead then confirms their essence, but it implies something also about what they do. Notice that Paul was asking the Father and the Son in their unity to act to grant the request that he had. And that means Paul was confident that both the Father and the Son perfectly agree in all matters. Or to say it differently, since they are unified, all members of the Godhead have the same purpose. All members of the Godhead have the same will. Obviously, there's a third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, that's not mentioned here in our text. But Romans, the book of Romans, says this in chapter 8, indicates that the Holy Spirit is also in perfect agreement with the divine will. Listen to Romans 8, 26 and 27. We do not know how to pray as we should. That's true of us many times. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Verse 27 goes on to say this. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. How does he know the will of God? Because the Spirit is God. This is definitely the deep end of the swimming pool, the doctrine of the Godhead. But the bottom line remains, biblically, all members of the Godhead are in complete unity, unity of essence, unity of being, and unity of purpose and will. This is an affirmation of God's unity here in this address. There's another affirmation. This is an affirmation of God's sovereignty. That's evidenced in Paul's awareness that he was in some circumstances that needed to change. And they were circumstances that, though they needed to change, he could not accomplish that change personally. But he knew someone who could, a sovereign God. So he prayed that God would do this, verse 11 again, direct our way to you or clear our way to you. Now, we can conclude something about the apostle here. His prayer here confirms that he recognized the utter worthlessness of all human efforts without divine aid. But in contrast to that, a sovereign God has all power, a sovereign God has all wisdom, all knowledge necessary to bring about whatever circumstances are best for His glory and our good. So Paul relied on God to do something here about his circumstances, to orchestrate ministry opportunities that he himself could never produce. And remember, this request is worded so that Paul was acknowledging both the Father and the Son are equally sovereign. Now, assured of those truths, we can pray like Paul did. We can direct our prayers to either the Father or the Son. Granted, our habit is to pray to the Father. That's my habit. Jesus taught his disciples to pray that way because he as the Son was the one talking. But listen to these verses. John 16, verse 23. It's Jesus talking here. John 16, 23. If you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. And yet, listen to Acts 7, verse 59. This is the stoning of Stephen. So as that last stone hit him that was necessary to kill him, he said this. He called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. One more, 
The same author who recorded Jesus' statement in John 16, 23, that if we ask the Father anything in Jesus' name, the Father will do it. It's that author, John, who says this in 1 John 5, 13 and 14. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Verse 14, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. What a wonderful affirmation of not only the unity of the members of the Godhead, but the complete sovereignty of the members of the Godhead. This makes the address distinctive in this prayer. Second, the distinctive request. The distinctive requests. Paul is petitioning this unified God, and that petition is twofold here. First of all, there's a request concerning the missionaries. A request concerning the missionaries. Now, we've already commented on this statement, direct our way to you. We've commented on that from the standpoint of what that request meant concerning Paul's view of God. But let's talk about the request more practically for a moment. He prays, may God direct our way to you. As we've seen in previous messages, the missionaries long to return to the city of Thessalonica to fellowship with the believers there, but also to continue their ministry to them, to teach them. Look back at verse 10 of chapter 3. Night and day we keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. Why? And may complete what is lacking in your faith. You could translate that word complete, perfect. Paul wanted to return to help complete or perfect any weaknesses, any defects in their faith and their understanding of doctrine in their walk with Christ. So, that's why Paul wanted to go back to Thessalonica, in a word, to help them mature. And as he expanded their knowledge of God through the teaching of the revealed truth, they would mature. It would be that deeper knowledge of truth, God's Word, that in turn would enlarge their ability to trust the Lord and enable them to walk in greater obedience to the Lord's will. But when the apostle penned this request, the path of return to Thessalonica was not possible. We saw that back in chapter 2, verse 18. Look at 2.18 again. He says, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. And as we previously noted, the idea of hindering meant that Satan had orchestrated, we don't know how, how he does it, Satan Satan orchestrated various obstacles and barriers to the return of the missionaries to Thessalonica. That's all we know. And Paul knew that to be true. So essentially what Paul prayed for here in our text was that the Father and the Son would remove the obstacles, remove the barriers. That's what the singular verb direct conveys. It's a request to to, to lay out a smooth path, a straight way. Literally, that's the idea. Clear all the obstacles. The apostle knew that only the power of the Lord could overcome what had caused those obstacles, Satan. Only the Lord could overcome Satan and allow the missionaries to return. And by the way, according to Acts 19 and Acts 20, it's safe to assume that eventually this request was granted. Paul did return to the Macedonian province about five years later. It would be hard to believe that he didn't see these Thessalonians that he loved so much. So there's part of the twofold request, a request concerning the missionaries. Here's the other request, a request concerning the believers. 
a request concerning the believers. Verse 12, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love. Now here, the title Lord is referring to just the Son. That's how it's used in verse 11, verse 13. In fact, for the most part in all of Paul's writings, that's how he uses it. It's best to interpret that here, which means here the, the, the petition is offered to Jesus. And what Paul petitioned the Lord for was, first of all, the increase of their love. Increase means the idea of enlargement. I'm praying that you would enlarge the capacity of their love. And second, he was asking that that love would abound. That means to increase to the point where there's abundance of the love. So the two words together just mean he was praying that their love would increase to the point of overflowing. But a clarification here, he was not praying that because they completely lacked love. Look ahead to verse chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. He says in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. So they did have love. Paul's making this request because of a reality about all Christians. Continual increase in selfless, loving devotion to others is always a need for all believers. And more specifically, the love is agape. Agape, that's that distinctive, noble Christian love. It's the word in the New Testament that's used frequently for God's love for us, our love for Him, and our love for one another. It's found in verse after verse in the New Testament. Just listen to some of these just a small sampling. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now faith, hope, love, abide, these three. But the greatest of these is agape, love. 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Let all that you do be done in agape. Galatians 5, 13 and 14. Through love, agape, serve one another, because the whole law is fulfilled in one word, the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. One more, Ephesians 4, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness and with patience, show tolerance for one another. That's a difficult standard to reach, to show tolerance to one another all the time. It requires humility gentleness, and patience. But here's what happens at salvation. God causes a miracle to be formed. He, by the act of regeneration, He causes a spiritually dead person to become spiritually alive at His appointed time and according to His sovereign will. It's not something anybody else can bring to pass. But from that moment on, we are adopted into His family and we then began a process of comprehending more and more what it means that God loves us. And Paul prayed that for the Ephesians, that they would grow in that kind of love. Ephesians 3.19, he prayed that they would come to know the love of Christ. I mean, they knew it, but I'd really come to love for you to know it more deeply because it surpasses all knowledge, he says. But here in our text, he's talking about the horizontal application of this. We're pressing on this love a little further here. 
Yes, we can grow in our understanding of God's love for us and our love for Him, but here Paul specifically is itemizing whom this love is to be directed toward horizontally, and it's in a particular order. First of all, verse 12, for one another. That is our biblical priority when it comes to love. It's our first priority. It's loving other believers. And several New, Ter- New Testament verses, verses emphasize this, that the prime objects of love are, first of all, fellow Christians. We prioritize believers over everyone of the world and unbelievers. I've read this verse to you many times, that interaction in the upper room, John 13, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus tells the disciples in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you agape, agapao, one another. Even as I've loved you, that you love one another. That was a hard pill to swallow for those 11 disciples. Judas had already left the room. So the so-called good ones were left. And they're still looking around at one another and going, you've got to be kidding me. Tell us to do something else, Jesus. He says, no. Verse 35, by this, the world will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. Romans 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We read 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9 a moment ago, that they were known for their love of the brethren. Peter adds this thought, 1 Peter 1, 22, fervently love one another from the heart. So that's our priority, first of all, and Paul prayed that these Thessalonians would grow in their ability to do that their love for one another. And we need to grow in that, and we express that love in practical ways. We minister to one another's practical needs. We express it through our commitment to fellowship with one another. We express it through encouraging one another in times of trial and difficulty, through mutually bearing one another's burdens, praying for one another that God would, by His power, would help each other In our times of difficulty, there's the first priority, but it's not the only one. There's a second priority. Our love is also to reach beyond the circle of Christians, verse 12 says, and for all people. This now broadens our horizontal responsibility. It's a love for the world. Now, it's interesting when you start putting together all the New Testament injunctions or exhortations that concern how we are to interact with the people of the world, unbelievers even. Listen to some of these, Romans 12, 17 and 18, respect what is right in the sight of all men, men meaning people. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We're not to be known as those who are trying to stir up discord. We're to try to get along and have peace with all people. Galatians 6, verse 10. While we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people. Do good deeds to them. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. And verse 20 goes on to say, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. The human habit when somebody is down or different is to kick them. The Bible turns all that upside down. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. 
All different kinds of men, in other words. All kinds of people. Titus 3.2, show every consideration for all men. One more, 1 Peter 2.17, honor all people. And in that verse, it says, honor the president. Actually, it says king, of course. Honor the king. Honor your rulers. Give them honor. I mean, this, this is difficult. Just think about all this, that we are to try to get along with all people. We're to try to do what's right in their sight. We're to try to do good things for them and to them. We're to, try to, to, we're to desire God's blessing upon them, even if they persecute us. We're to meet their practical needs. We're to pray for all kinds of people, be considerate to all kinds of people, even seek to honor in some way all people. No doubt, loving outsiders is part of our responsibility. It does fit with Jesus' teaching. The Lord himself taught this in Matthew 5, 43 and 44. He said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. Matthew twenty two thirty nine, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But you also know what he did in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? He broadened their understanding of what neighbor meant. It's not just people of your own group, your own kind. It's anybody and everybody. By the way, this is not just a New Testament sort of way of thinking. You go all the way back to what God told the nation of Israel, His covenant nation, His chosen geopolitical ethnic group, a nation. Deuteronomy 10, 19. Show your love for the alien. That didn't mean people from Mars or that somehow ended up in Roswell, New Mexico. Those outside that group, why? For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You remember what it was like. Show your love for them. You know, we ought to have a special sort of compassion in our heart when there are new people who move to our area, people from other countries especially find it so difficult to adapt. Other countries, whether it's Africa or Europe or Texas or California, any of those countries, there's a cultural change. Our hearts need to go out to people like that. This is God's expectation of His people, that we would grow to have a greater love for the lost. So whether we're talking about loving the saints, one another, or loving the lost, it's an overflow, an increase in abundance of love that's the kind of life that pleases the Lord. And daringly, in our passage, Paul sets himself as a standard, as an example to be emulated. Look at verse 12, just as we also do for you, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the missionaries. They went into that city of pagans, and they loved those people in the sense that they they didn't hate them. They spent time with them and taught them the gospel. But when he says, as we do for you, he knew that ultimately it was Jesus who's the ultimate example of this kind of love. He says in John 15, 12, Jesus said this, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. So when Paul puts him forth as himself as an example, he is thinking Yes, but I'm trying to emulate Christ. He even says that in 1 
Corinthians 11, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. I don't want you to just look at me. He says, look at, at the Lord. I'm trying to follow him too. So as the Spirit worked in Paul's own life, he could then be an example of faith and love for the church, just as all Christian leaders should do in the home and church today. So we've seen the distinctive address, the distinctive request. Here's the third and final distinctive characteristic. Number three, the distinctive goal. The distinctive goal. Here's the goal of this increasing of abounding, overflowing love. Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts. And that verb establish means strengthen. We saw it back in verse 2. He sent Timothy, it says in verse 2, to strengthen the Thessalonians in their faith. So here it means that Paul was praying that God would grant, grant them some strength, but it's inner strength. Notice he says strengthen their hearts. And as we know, the term hearts is a comprehensive term. That it, it represents the whole of our inner man, our inner states. It represents our thoughts, our affections, our will, our desires. You could say it stands for the whole personality. And that's how we are to serve the Lord with our whole heart. But that's where it goes wrong. That's why we're told this in Proverbs 4.23, to watch out for our hearts. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart, your whole personality with all diligence because from it flow the springs of life. We are who we are because of who we are in the heart. Jesus confirmed that, Matthew 15, 18 and 19. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Verse 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. It doesn't matter what sin we're talking about. It doesn't matter what skewed view of things we're talking about. It doesn't matter how much people are trying to imbibe the thinking of the world and be like the world and buying into the world's ideas and teachings and all that. No matter what you fill in the blank with, it's all a problem in the heart. And, of course, Scripture says that the Lord's the only one that knows what's there. Totally. I'm going to continue to bombard you with scriptures this morning, cross-references. 1 Chronicles 28.9, listen. 1 Chronicles 28.9, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. 1 Samuel 16.7, that famous scene of trying to, to find the next king of Israel. The prophet says, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Psalm 44, verse 21 is sobering. He knows the secrets of the heart. Proverbs 21, verse 2 deals with reality. I don't know why people like those reality shows. They're sickening, but this is a reality verse. Proverbs 21, verse 2. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart's. Doesn't matter what somebody thinks about themselves. What does the Lord think? So back to our prayer. Paul understands all those verses. And so he prays that it would be the Lord who would do this work in their hearts so that their whole personality would be established in love. And to the prayer, he adds this as part of the goal, verse 13 to be without blame in holiness. Holiness pertains to our inward purity, but it even points to something more specific in Scripture. It means to be set apart for God, by God. To be holy means to be set apart. 
Now, in an objective sense, that's true of every believer. We are set apart by God, for God, at the moment of our conversion, our salvation. It's the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. God takes a spiritually dead person and makes them spiritually alive. They're born from above, born again. And from that moment on, they are set apart to God. You could say then biblically, they are the holy ones. That's how Scripture views us, positionally. There's a word for that in Scripture, the saints, the holy ones, the saints. And since we've been set apart, we are called upon then to exhibit that in our choices of lifestyle, in our holiness and purity of character and conduct. 1 Peter 1, 15, like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Why? Verse 16, because it's written, God said, you'll be holy because I'm holy. I've set you apart to myself to be like me. So on one hand, back to the prayer, Paul is praying to the Lord for this because only God can enable someone to make progress in this in their lives, progress in holiness. And yet at the same time, we know in Scripture that we have a responsibility in it, choices to make of what to do and not do and think and not think. Philippians 2.12 says to work out your salvation. We have a responsibility, not work for it, but make it evident. But right after that, three verses after that, Philippians 2.15, Paul adds something similar to our prayer passage today. He says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless in the midst of a crooked generation, perverse generation. We live in a perverted, perverse generation. They said that back then. 2,000 more years of perversion. We've perfected perversion. Be blameless. So yes, God's the one to do it. We have a responsibility in it. But we need to clarify that term, blameless. Paul is saying to establish their hearts in this love so they're without blame, so they're blameless in holiness. It does not mean that we can attain this perfectly. We'll never attain a perfect state of sinlessness in this life. But he does mean that the overall record of conduct should be recognized as being a godly life. Now, you may remember back in chapter 2, verse 10, Paul used this very term about himself and the other missionaries. He described himself and his associates in chapter 2, verse 10 as holy and righteous and blameless. He wasn't saying that we're perfect, we never sin. He was saying, though, that our behavior is known to have an overall consistency Consistent character of godliness. So this same consistence of holiness is what Paul wants for his friends in Thessalonica. It's what God desires of us. So what does this mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. This is not some legalistic adherence to external standards. People love rules and do's and don'ts. They're very comfortable in them. And they're uncomfortable around others who don't have the same rules. Did you know that it's possible for a person to have very high moral standards and not be holy? That was true of the Apostle Paul before he came to Christ. He admits that in Philippians 3 where he lists what his life was, his pre-Christian years were like. One of the things he says was this, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Not perfection, but when people thought of that man They thought of a man who was consistently obedient to the law. 
Paul understood the danger of a legalistic focus on externals. He understood that that does not result in true holiness. So much so that he wrote this to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2, verses 21 and 23. Listen to this. This is powerful. He, he mentions some rules that people have. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Verse 23. That approach has the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Fleshly indulgence is a problem in the heart. So Paul's prayer was not for mere legalistic externalism. It was for genuine holiness. And it's not that this blameless and holy life was the way that they would secure their salvation. It doesn't do that. But it does prove salvation. Like Jesus said in Matthew 12, we know a tree by its fruit. Consistent holiness is important. But this pursuit of holiness on our part needs a powerful motive. It's not our default setting. And there's more than one motive we can find in Scripture, but one of those motivations is the knowledge that we will someday stand before the Lord and give an account. So Paul adds that to his prayer. He asks to his prayer what's coming for believers in the future. We will appear, he says in verse 13, before our God and Father. That refers to the time of final accounting. This is not the great white throne judgment, a judgment of unbelievers. But it is an accounting. And that term before means in the presence of. It means location. It's the same term used of Jesus when he stood before the governor in Matthew 27. It means a specific point in time and location. We're going to stand before God, but we're not standing before him as a judge. It says before our God and Father. What a comfort that is. Now, I've recently discussed this with you, what is known as the judgment seat of Christ. A judgment of believers, or the Bema, B-E-M-A of Christ. We find it in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear, only talking about believers there, we must appear before, in the presence of, the judgment seat, Bema, of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And the language there indicates that this is a judgment, not of condemnation, but a judgment of rewards. And the language even indicates that it's a, it's a, it's a summary look of your life. When it's all said and done, what remains of our life? Is there something there that the Lord could reward But this is said in the context of our prayer where it's already been affirmed that there's unity in the Godhead. It's the judgment seat of Christ. It's the bema of Christ. But is it right to say that it's also the bema of God, the judgment of God? The answer is yes. In fact, Romans 14.10 even puts it that way. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So which is it, the judgment seat of Christ or the judgment seat of God? And the answer is yes. We will appear before the Lord at the Bema. Now, it's in the future. Presently, Christ is with the Father in the heavenly throne. He ascended back to heaven, Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God, not literally meaning, you know, God has a left hand and a right hand. It doesn't mean that. He doesn't have a body, the Father. 
The right hand means in the place of preeminence, the place of majesty. Hebrews 10, 12, having offered one sacrifice for sins, the cross, he was raised from the grave, he ascended to heaven, so it says he sat down at the right hand of God. He's ruling and reigning over everything. But though he's ruling and reigning at the throne of majesty and God now, someday Christ will return. And the Bema hearing will take place in conjunction with that future visit of the Lord. Look at verse 13. It says, we will appear before him at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Now, the term for coming is the term parousia. You may have heard that before. It basically is a word that means presence, at the presence of the Lord. This is what believers look forward to, being in the presence of the Lord. Now, it is important to understand that there's more than one aspect in the New Testament that's presented related to the parousia. It depends on the context, what aspect is being looked at. There's the literal coming to the earth, what we commonly refer to as the second coming of the Lord. That's going to occur after divine wrath is poured out upon the unbelieving earth. Jesus literally comes to the earth and touches the earth, puts his foot on the earth to rule and reign in a millennial kingdom that's promised in Scripture. But what is said here in our text doesn't fit that aspect of it. It doesn't fit with all that's said in the context of 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, there's another aspect of the future parousia. We'll get to it in chapter 4. It's something that will happen prior to the period of wrath. And that's when Christ and His people meet, not on the earth, but in the air. Commonly called the rapture, chapter 4. At this aspect, Jesus does not literally return to earth. But the church is caught up to meet the Lord in the air in His presence, taken to that place He's prepared for them, John 14. And then there is the rewarding that takes place at the judgment seat of Christ. So again, this refers to Christ's meeting of His all people in the air. Chapter 4, followed by the beam of God in Christ, and Paul mentions it here. Why? Well, think about it. Knowing that when Christ comes, He's coming to reward His people, and that we will have our works evaluated before the bema, It's a wonderful motivation then, a powerful motivation to pursue holy living now and to pray for that now. And yes, 13 goes on and concludes by saying others will be present at that future reckoning with all his saints, again, all the holy ones. In Paul's writing, saints refers to those who are redeemed. Saints are not people that have won some special commendation by the church because they've done something special or anything like that. Saints is a word that's used to refer to all believers, all the redeemed, ordinary church members. But here, Paul writes that these holy ones will be with Christ at the parousia. Some have tried to say this refers to the angels that come with him, but angels are not referred to that way in the New Testament. It invariably refers to people. So Paul is just mentioning again, the redeemed people will be with the Lord at this aspect of His coming, and the term all points to an inclusive group. Those Paul was writing to, other Christians who had died, all will be joined with them before the beam of God, the beam of Christ. Let me just leave you with one word, though, to something to take comfort in. 
knowing, it's knowing that the Lord helps us with this. The Lord gives strength and help that we can arrive there without shame. Listen to Jude 24. It's a word of praise, a word of blessing. Jude 24, now to him, in other words, I'm giving praise to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. Don't strive for this on your own. Pray like Paul prayed for the Lord's help. Well, no doubt this is a model prayer for pastors especially. All pastors and elders ought to pray for their people like this. A faithful pastor understands that the lives of the people he serves, I hope you're sitting down, they're not perfect yet, okay? I hope you knew that. We're not perfect yet. And so ministry is not complete yet. Any pastor, any elder that's here. And so a faithful pastor is going to engage in this kind of sincere intercession on your behalf, behalf of the people, and for our ministry to you, and our, that our preaching will be effective. I'm so grateful for that group of people that pray in the seminary room on Sunday mornings. You need to come to that at 8.30, praying for the preaching of the Word and the teaching of the Word even in the classes that God's will will be done. At the end of the day, all of us need to be committed to prayer for all aspects of our lives in ministry. When it comes to evangelism, we have to pray. We pray to be effective in evangelism. We pray that God would give us opportunities to speak to people and give us even the words to say. Pray for your marriages and your family to have effective marriages and families. We pray that that God will grant that. Churches pray that God would provide everything necessary to carry on our ministry. And let me tell you something, we should follow the example of Paul's prayer in a couple of other ways. You can pray for anything. He believed God's control over the events of life, even extended to the practicalities of life, even his travel plans. I'm just saying the apostle didn't think, well, God's too busy managing the universe to kind of intervene on that. Listen, pray for everything. We're going to see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 down the road. But something else, Paul prayed against satanic activity. We should do that. Listen, I understand there are those out there who abuse all this and, and think they have the power to speak to Satan and bind him and all that kind of stuff, and they pray strange prayers. Listen, I'm just saying pray like the apostle did. We must pray that God would prevent satanic influence in our lives, that God would prevent satanic influence in the lives of our family members, in the life of this church, that God would remove any barriers and obstacles that Satan has thrown up in our way. But I think the last thing I want to emphasize to you was that little possessive pronoun, our. He referred to God as our God. And I told you, that implies a personal, intimate relationship with him, access to him as a child to a father. But only those who are followers of Christ can claim that. Only those who are true followers of Christ are called children of God. Listen to John 1 verse 12. As many as received him, to them... He gave the right to become children of God. 
That's it. Only those who have received Christ. So if you haven't received Jesus, which means you haven't come to the place of trusting Him for the forgiveness of your sins and and submission to Him, claiming Him, no, you're the Lord of my life, I'm not, then this prayer that we've studied is not a prayer you can pray. There is a prayer you can pray, though, and it's only this one. It's only something like this. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I trust in you alone for that. And I commit to following you as the Lord of my life. That's the prayer that Christ answers for you. And then you can have the joy of saying he's our Father, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this prayer that we could look at today. We confess, Lord, our prayerlessness. We know this is many times the weakest part of our Christian lives, consistent prayer. And yet we're told that we need to live holy lives, and we go about thinking we can live that without prayer. So, Lord, I thank you that you forgive us for our failures like that. But stir us up to seek to be more consistent in our prayers about ourselves and about for one another in this church. Father, I do pray that we would come to trust you more as a sovereign God. And I do pray for anyone here who can't claim that little pronoun, our, that you would open their hearts to help them to see that's their greatest need, to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. In his name we pray, amen.